Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory. If you haven't already subscribed, please catch us wherever you love to listen to your podcast, from the Relevant Radio app to Apple, YouTube, you name it, we are there. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to go and give us a five-star review to help other people discover the podcast. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Casey Chops are joining me today on Trending. He's a freelance writer. You may have seen his work in The Federalist, Catholic Answers, and other places. His master's degree in theology from Christendom College. And I was intrigued a few weeks ago when I read an article of his talking about the need for restoration among men and what men need in the midst of the quote-unquote masculinity crisis uh, that we don't talk a lot about. We talk about how masculinity is toxic in our culture, but not necessarily how men are good and how the differences between men and women uh, need to be encouraged and fostered. I love part of, you know, kind of understanding the theology of the body of St. John Paul II is the beauty of understanding in our sexuality and our differences in male and female Part of what we love so much in that male-female dynamic and attraction is what is other in the other person. So we're going to be talking today during our weekly Gentleman's Hour about some of the differences between men and women, especially fostering and giving those outlets, good, healthy outlets for men to further uh, sharpen who they are as men. We're also going to talk about the coddling of the American mind and the challenges with everything from trigger warnings, inclusive language, safe spaces. You know what I'm talking about. Maybe you've dealt with it with one of your millennial on down children, or maybe you yourself just feel like you can't say anything today without it kind of blowing up in your face or offending someone. And it's that season of Advent. So we're going to dive into just a couple more things discussing the Advent wreath as we maybe have these on our table in our homes. And we'll talk about preparing for death and how this is a part of the theme of Advent as we head into that Christmas season. Who would think? Think about your death as you think about that sweet, precious baby Jesus being born to the Holy Family. You're listening to Trending with Tim Ray here on Relevant Radio. As I mentioned before, Casey Chucks are joining me on Trending. And I want to dive into an article you wrote some weeks ago, Casey. Men need restoration, not leftist ridicule to fix our modern masculinity crisis. Some of the things you talked about in the light of kind of a political uproar came back to the basic biological, physiological, mental, emotional uh, differences between men and women. And you started to orient uh, this need for men to be able to have fostered within them and within their friendships and their day-to-day interactions, uh, very basic things that point to the differences of men. And you start off with that biological difference in that natural tendency toward violence and aggression, but you talk about it in a healthy light, which I think is so fascinating, Casey, because we live at a time where, what, three, four years ago, um, the American Psychological Association listed masculinity as toxic, and one of the things they labeled as toxic was aggression, or we could argue strength. So how do you reconcile this understanding of violence and aggression as being a part of 
who men are and using it as a good and something to actually be fostered. Sure. Thanks so much for having me on, Tim Marie. So, uh, men, just by virtue of their biology, are going to be inclined towards violence and aggression. It's not something that I mean. We can we can adjust it in terms of testosterone levels. Um, we can we, you know we can put chemicals in our body that can can you know make some differences to that. But biologically, naturally, men are going to be oriented towards uh, yeah this violence and aggression. So the the point then is not to shame them into stopping uh, their, their tendencies towards violence and aggression. It's finding healthy and appropriate outlets, ones that are obviously not directed towards hurting other people, um, you know, warfare or whatever, unless that's necessary in just, in, uh, just warfare. But, you know, things like uh, sports, right, for, for millennia, we've, we've understood that this is a place where men can healthily engage with one another and, uh, and work out that aggression and also, you know, develop the kind of skills that they're going to need in order to be uh, brothers who protect their sisters, husbands who protect their wives and their children. Um, and, you know, even things like manual labor. I mean, we live in a culture where so much of uh, the, you know, the, our opportunities for exercise have, have limited so much. People go inside gyms and work on particular, uh, you know, types of equipment in order to work very, you know, particular muscle sets. I mean, I'm, on, a, on the piece of land that I have with my family, I, I go out with my boys and we cut wood. You know, we just chop wood in the winter and, you know, it gives them an opportunity to be outside and, uh, yeah, and to, and to actually, like, you know, like I said, it works out their aggression when they're, when they're inclined towards hitting one another, we get them hitting some wood. I love that you mentioned that simple thing such as wood because we are so pampered in the United States and the Western world where we have the capacity to have so many things automated and done for us where we just buy those things. But, you know, I was sharing with you just a few minutes ago before the show, I grew up in the mountains and you know, we did stuff, you know, like chopping wood and carrying wood. And, you know, we actually use our wood fire now because our heater isn't working. We just bought a new house. It's like it's nostalgic for me. I like bringing in the wood. I like carrying it. I like caring for the fire. There's some something very methodical about that. But especially for men, when you mention things such as chopping wood or cutting down trees, and we were living in the Midwest and we had way too many trees shout, uh, shading our house. And it was neat to just see how, you know, the hard work and you could even say the aggressive uh, work of chopping down trees and all that's done with that was such a good outlet even to see for my husband having that as a part of, you know, his day-to-day manual labor, not necessarily having to go, like you said, to the gym to get that in. Yeah. And as I'm a father of five kids and I have um, three boys, including a newborn, and uh, something that I've noticed that's, you talked at the beginning to Marie about differences between men and women is that, um, you know, my, my girls definitely need to go outside and play. And it's a, it's a great um, resource for them to kind of like get, you know, get off some steam and whatnot. But in particular, I noticed that when the boys have been inside for too long, that's when they start to orient that aggression and that testosterone towards each other or their sisters. And uh, they just, they kind of seem lacking purpose. Um, and and they, it's almost like even the toys themselves become objects of their wrath. Whereas getting outside <laughs> and, you know, digging holes in the ground and creating forts and running off into the woods, these are things that naturally, uh, that they're naturally inclined to. Um, and that, yeah, help facilitate their development as boys into men. It's interesting that you mentioned how the toys can turn into kind of those means of destruction and violence. 
uh, one of my dearest friends, she comes from a family of 11 children, and she said something my mom taught me growing up with you know, all my siblings and my brothers uh, was to help boys and men and you know spouses and children one day uh, channel what is very natural in them. And that is uh, men and boys are always either making something or breaking something. And I thought that was so interesting because it really made me start paying attention to this desire that I think is so deep-seated in men to either build or break. And depending on how that is channeled from um, the physical world, the material world, the family, um, even to spirituality and evangelization, that it's actually a very profound insight into who men are. Oh, I think that's exactly right. I can think about uh, examples of when my uh, my older sons have... Uh, you know, per- per- kind of like almost purposefully broken toys of their sisters in order to express, <laughs> you know, their disfavor, frustration with them, and how what I've been trying to inculcate in them. Um, and again, like like you mentioned before, Timory, this goes against the grain of our contemporary culture. But explaining to them that look, you actually are defenders of your sisters. You know, there there may be times in their lives where they're going to need you to stand up for them. You know, that that may have a physical component to it. It may simply just being present. And, and, uh, and standing up for their sisters and, and seeking to protect them. And that, of course, is also, also going to prepare them for being defenders of their spouses and their own children in their own time. Let's talk about another dimension that you mentioned in this article, that men need restoration. You talked about how men require a place to develop deep social bonds with other men. We know that in the 21st century, um, male loneliness is significantly on the rise. Uh, Suicidality among men is just heartbreaking to see, and especially among young men. Uh, The suicide rate, especially among millennials on down, and I've even seen um, locally, you know, young Christian pastors, you know, people who were preaching and working uh, within their community who loved our Lord, who are committing suicide. And it's heartbreaking and shocking. But I think one of the comments you made about the need for men to have deep social bonds with other men uh, points to what's missing in our American culture for men today as men, especially adult men, really say they don't have any close male friends. Oh, this is a, uh, we live in an America that is deeply isolated and atomized. Um, I've talked about this in a lot of my other writing, how we don't really even give children a chance to just go out and play that even, you know, uh, the activities that we give to children are so uh, carefully manicured and directed. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they, they we, boys need to have the opportunity to just go out and play with other boys, you know, um, and, ha- and have time to develop kind of those social skills on their own. Um, and certainly this is something that, uh, you know, as, as you mentioned, it becomes even more important as they become teenagers. And young men, you know, we live in a culture where um, we have so much entertainment that draws men and women, um, you know, into themselves, whether we're talking about iPhones and iPads uh, or social media, um, where, you know, we're told, we're lied to and, and said that this is authentic community, but it really is only, um, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a fabricated kind of community that doesn't have, that kind of deep personal social bond that we need because it's presenting uh, only a, like a, a, a certain kind of version of ourselves for a, a carefully curated. It doesn't really um, represent who we are, our real needs, our real vulnerabilities to be able to have those conversations with other men um, in places where we feel, you know, welcomed and, and safe and able to uh, yeah, really, really com- you know, communicate what our needs are and, uh, and have them be met in male fellowship. 
Now, there are two sides of this. One side you're touching on the kid side of it and the other side you're touching on the adult. And I want to dive a little deeper into both. Coming back to the kid side of it, it's interesting because I'm a new mom, you know, total rookie. My kid's about to turn to a second one on the way. Uh, but it's been interesting because I've seen this coddling of kids and, you know, I had a lot more freedom than the kids do today. You know, we, we would take off. I think I was maybe seven, as young as seven years old and we would go hiking and we would be off and gone to the creek and all over without my parents. And I remember my mom always saying, you know, she had even more freedom than I had. Uh, but it's fascinating to me, you know, being a parent now, I'm seeing, I think, part of the challenge with why parents aren't allowing their kids to just play uh, unregulated by themselves or other adults so that they can develop those social skills and have fun and, you know, learn the, hey, if I fall and I poke my eye with a stick, you know, I'm going to learn and not do, you know, play necessarily in that same way again. Uh, but I think a lot of parents are so scared with regard to what their children will be exposed to um, in terms of other behaviors. And I like good parents, parents who are just trying to, you know, get through the day. Uh, and I've seen this too, like there are certain kids, I can think of one kid in particular that, you know, if my almost two-year-old has been around, she will be slapped in the face, pushed, shoved, and ha see witness screaming tantrums from this little girl, and it impacts her behavior. So I can't allow her to develop those social skills and playtime with this particular kid. Um, ideally, you know, she wouldn't be around her at all, but um, other kids, you know, there is that freedom to go, okay, you know what, they can figure out how to bicker back and forth a little bit. Or you know what, yeah, she might fall off of that rock that she's on, but that's okay. She's going to learn from her surroundings. And bringing this back to like boys and men, you know, it's the same thing with kids across the board. I think that parents have to really um, navigate today, making sure they're choosing good kids for their boys to hang out with so that you can trust those social skills that are being developed when the kids are hanging out with other well-balanced, corrected, and nourished children. Oh, yeah. I think that's exactly right. It is a much more difficult um, world to navigate for parents. I think that um, in prior generations, perhaps our parents or grandparents, there was more of an expectation that the other families around you believed the same things, had the same kind of mm -hmm. values, probably went to the same church that you went to, probably went to the same Knights of Columbus meetings or other kinds of you know civic associations in the community. That's not really necessarily the case anymore. I think you hit on something important, Timory, which is that you know a lot of kids, even at very young ages, are being exposed to things, um, oftentimes through social media, um, through these uh, you know handheld devices that they're given at way too young age that we don't want our kids to be exposed to. So it is a definitely a careful balance that we have to uh, to make to you know but ensure that our kids do have you know access to other kids and in, in in a certain amount of freedom where they can you know play and just kind of be on their own and not be constantly monitored by parents, but also you know, ensuring that you have a trust with those other families so that, you know, the, you know that the kids aren't going to be exposing them to things that are going to have long-term detrimental impact on them. Really quick, I would like to talk about the male isolation from the perspective of adults as well. Let's maybe throw out some uh, tips for that man who's, you know, he has kids, he's working, you know, he's, uh, you know, in the thick of just, you know, growing his family and it can be so busy and maybe there's sports or extracurricular activities, yet we're saying, hey, men need deep social bonds with other men. You know, you quote Proverbs 27, iron sharpens iron. And I've seen this so prominent with my husband. The more he spends time with um, other men, it's so good for him. He's a better man, a better husband, a better father. So how can men who maybe just don't have this, they have that isolation, they don't have those friendships or maybe familiar 
familial male relationships, how can you do that when you feel so awkward even trying to make it happen or um, just uncomfortable? It's not some a season in your life that you've been in of trying to make friends in a while and foster that. Yeah, I think it's this is especially hard. I, it, it's hard even for myself. You know, I'm, uh, I'm going to be 39 in, in a few weeks and I've got five kids. It's hard for me to make time. Um, even though I, you know, I live in the community in which I grew up, I have lots of deep friendships that I've, I've had for a long time. We have to be very intentional about it. You have to be willing to, you know, to go up to, to men after church. Hopefully, like, you know, churches that listeners uh, go to are like mine, where we have some coffee and donuts afterwards, and it's a chance for other dads to kind of, you know, talk and, and share stories and frustrations and, you know, give tips on parenting and, and also look for other opportunities outside of that. At my parish, um, we're actually just starting up a, a new ministry for um, young parents, uh, you know, with, uh, with, with young families um, so that they can have some more consistent, uh, helpful support where, you know, priests and other people will, will come in and, and give, uh, give talks and we'll have fellowship and food and all of that. Um, but yeah, I think men do need to be really intentional about this because it's so easy to just get wrapped up in social media um, and just spend, you know, your, your free hours on Facebook or Instagram or whatever and not be, you know, really intentional about going out and finding those groups of other guys who are going to build you up and help you to, de- to develop, your, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the cardinal virtues that are necessary, um, both for yourself, but also for the family you're trying to raise and protect. Right, right. And, and it's a matter at the end of the day of putting yourself out there, right? And something I've noticed, you know, as a married couple too, maybe you don't want to sacrifice that time away from family. I totally get that. Uh, but, you know, inviting, invite people into your home, be a host, have barbecues, you know, keep it simple, use the paper plates, you know, ask people to bring something, whatever it might be, and allow for that split male, female company to happen if that happens, you know, again, not that I'm condoning or encouraging, but like, okay, if the guys are going to smoke cigars, like go and enjoy smoking your cigars, you know, and have that male time and foster those couples relationships that you know you can so that you're not pulling away from family time per se. So I, I love this topic. It's such an important need to really foster uh, the needs and the differences between men and women and especially for men. It's our weekly gentleman's hour here on Trending with Timory. That's Casey Chalk. He's a freelance writer. You can find him at Catholic Answers and other places, uh, but find him at CaseyChalk.com. That's C-A-S-E-Y-C-H-A-L-K.com. We'll post the link on social media as well as in the episode notes for today's show. I'll come back talking about the coddling of the American mind, its impact on men and how we evangelize and share the good news. And we're going to talk about preparing for death this Advent as we prepare for the coming of Christ. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. Welcome back to our weekly Gentleman's Hour today on Trending. Joining me now is Casey Chalk. He's a freelance writer. You can find his work at The Federalist, among other places. He's at CaseyChalk.com. We'll post a link on social media in the episode notes if you'd like to check that out. Just find those at RelevantRadio.com forward slash trending or catch this episode wherever you listen to your podcast. Be sure to subscribe and share the episode with a friend. Text it. Easy way to spread the work we're doing here at Relevant Radio. Uh, Casey, you recently were writing about the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation of Failure. Uh, This book was a bestseller back in 2018, and it really touches on this whole idea of these things such as trigger warnings, inclusive language, safe spaces, you know, the snowflake generation of millennials on down is actually creating a real problem when it comes to how 
happiness, uh, being successful in life, just contributing to society, but also to our work as Catholics and our call to evangelization. I'd like to dive into some of the challenges that we're seeing for young Americans today and how we can move past those uh, to actually, you know, tailor our evangelization uh, appropriately in a way that all of us can engage in and not be afraid of that trigger language that leads people to just absolutely melt today. Yeah, um, I think this is definitely related to to our earlier conversation about men, because a lot of these ideas like safetyism, uh, you know, fragility, this, uh, this the fact that, you know, pe- young people are so fragile that they, you know, they can't even be exposed to ideas that um, cause, you know, emotional trauma for them, uh, you know, makes them, you know, unable to really even have substantive conversations in the public square. I mean, this is a problem that many men are encountering as well, and, and have been duped into uh, believing as well. I mean, certainly lots of men are being hurt by it um, because they're being accused of toxic masculinity and microaggressions against other people, but many of them have bought into it too, which weakens them because it weakens their ability to uh, to actually realize their, you know, these these masculine qualities that we were talking about that are a necessary part of their biology and, and God-given uh, nature. It's interesting you tie this back to kind of the male crisis because uh, we were talking about, you know, um, men either breaking something or making something and that this is a very fundamental part of masculinity. And I think that it comes even more so. It's so fundamental that it comes back to God, Casey, and that at the end of the day, either men are going to be building up the kingdom of heaven or they are going to be viscerally working to destroy it. And we live in a culture where we see this institutionalization of um just intolerance, you know, in the name of tolerance, absolute intolerance. And it really is stymieing any conversation about personal growth that at the end of the day is only made possible through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, in this article I wrote for uh, Catholic Answers, I talk about how these ideas that have become so prominent amongst young Americans that are described in the coddling of the American mind have they really represent a significant threat to the ability of um, individual Catholics to share their faith and for the church more broadly to do its work. Um, you know, I mean, to take an example, uh, the, the idea of uh, fragility. Um, you know, if we are uh, so um, emotionally uh, weak that even being exposed to ideas that are, that are different than our own that might hurt our emotional well-being, right? Someone, for example, telling you, hey, you know, the lifestyle you're living is sinful and uh, you need to repent. Otherwise, there um, could be you know, eternal consequences um, that, uh, you know, oh my gosh, I can't be exposed to such ideas. I need to re- retreat into a safe space. I can't even have a conversation with a, per- a person who is uh, sharing truths like that. Um, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know how you can share the gospel um, on, a, on a campus that's sort of uh, become overwhelmed by this kind of thinking. Let's talk a little bit uh, more about that fragility side of things and the connection to um, what you discuss in your article as a microaggression, uh, this idea that uh, people are not just finding everything offensive very easily, like tiny little things, but how we have been, I would really argue millennials have been encouraged on down in the generations right now to intentionally find things offensive, you know, to not have maybe a thicker skin or to let things go or say, you know what? We're just different. You know, we, we were raised different. You know, my, my sister jokes sometimes when she has differences with her husband. She just goes, 
I just wasn't raised like that. And she moves along. And, you know, it's something kind of funny. And in some ways, it's just like, you're different from me. And there's nothing wrong with differences. I think we're so offended by other people thinking differently or commenting differently than what we want. What we almost want from other people is like forced and compelled speech. And ironically, this is being legalized in the United States or forced and compelled actions. But that goes against a very Catholic understanding of the dignity of the human person, the individual value and contribution that we all have in our unique differences, both as men and women and as individuals. Yeah, I think there's also a power play here as well. I think oftentimes the language of microaggressions is being used as a way to silence people with whom you have disagreements, right? Because if someone starts to yes. you know communicate certain ideas that you uh, you know you find uh, unsavory you can you can you can try, try to find something that um, is being used as a microaggression against you and it kind of derails the conversation puts the other person kind of on their on on their heels um, makes them look um, like they're like they're the bigot or the bad person in front of others um, I've heard this recently uh, in my work you know when uh, someone said that uh, to refer to a meeting as a powwow is a microaggression against Native Americans. Um, I think that's I think that's absurd. I don't. I can't think of any person <laughs> I've ever known who intended to insult Native Americans by referring to a meeting as a powwow. But again, it, I think it's it's a way that kind of it. Uh, I'm sorry. It forces I'm sorry, everyone Casey. into really, I just can't. Yeah. <laughs> I know. This is just ridiculous. It took me a second to get what you were saying that a powwow as a meeting is considered offensive to Native Americans or is sitting Indian style or whatever. Like, I just have to laugh because we're actually there right now. Yeah, well, I think we are there. I mean, I heard another thing where someone said that referring to a meeting as a brown bag is somehow racist against African Americans. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. It's It, it really is insane. Um, but it, it really is. It, it does reflect it's a it's a threat certainly against the gospel even against language itself because language constantly has to be revised in order to ensure that nobody can be offended um and when we live in a culture where language constantly has to be policed for that well that that really is a threat to the gospel because the gospel um in a in a very deep visceral way is offensive it's offensive even to those of us who have been catholics all of our lives because the gospel is something that tells us we're sinners we're the ones who are in need of salvation. We're the ones who need to repent. That's a hard message to hear. I mean, even for me, as, uh, as someone who you know, goes, to, goes to Mass every week, I, I don't like to be told that I'm a sinner that's, uh, that needs to repent before God, but that's the message. Um, so yeah, I think this really is a, it's a threat to the ability of Catholics to, um, to represent themselves and their faith in the public square in America. Absolutely. Casey, I want to thank you for joining us today on Trending. It's been a joy to talk to you in this challenge with regard to uh, the American mind and how young people are being coddled today as a real crisis. I'd like to talk for a moment about solutions. Um, how in the midst of these trigger warnings, the victim and victimizer mentality, which we didn't even dive into, but I think most of us get it. Like everyone is either a victim or a victimizer. You're either, you know, good because you've been victimized or bad because you have victimized other people. People. And it's a very uh, subjective, there's no objective truth to that whole idea of victim versus victimizer. How does all of this, from microaggression to safetyism, that fragility, how does it tie back to the way in which we evangelize today and share the gospel in the current climate? 
I think we have to maintain a charity even towards a lot of these ideas, which I, I mean, it's, it, it's easy to laugh and it's, it's easy to ridicule them. Um, and I think there is, there is, there is a good place for some of that too. I think Babylon B, if people are familiar with that website, does a fantastic job mm-hmm. of that in many respects. But we, I think we do have to have to maintain a deep sense of, of, of charity and sympathy towards people who have been hoodwinked into a lot of these ideas because they've been so deeply ingrained in them since, you know, as early as preschool or kindergarten. Um, but we do also have to develop um, a thick skin of our own so that we don't fall into a lot of these errors of microaggressions or fragility and also helping other people to recognize that they'll actually be stronger and more capable people if they can develop some of that thick skin as well, that it will serve them well in a world where, you know, a lot of people, regardless of what job you're in, you know, what school you're at, you're going to encounter ideas and people that that hurt you, that make you uncomfortable. And the the solution isn't necessarily to stomp on that person or, or call them a bigot and, uh, and push them out. It's to figure out a way to, to hold your own ground and, uh, yeah, and to, and to maintain a charity because, you know, even the people who are um, pushing a lot of these things uh, on our culture, they're creating the image of God. They need to be saved just as much as we do. Um, and so they need, to, they need to be given that respect that, that we yearn from them. Mm-hmm. And I find that most of our day-to-day interaction when it comes to evangelization isn't like direct discussion of Jesus Christ per se, but, you know, maybe it might be something like, you know, things are crazy in life and you're sharing, you know, thank God I'm making it through this because of my faith. You know, it's, it's these moments of um, little seeds that are planted of inspiration where you're sharing about where you're coming from. And then when the door opens, often usually more so on the part of the other person, that's when we go in more directly with regard to evangelizing and uh, in a very direct and intentional and targeted way in terms of what we're discussing. But most of the time, it's a matter of our example. And I think that that's the difference that we should be setting in the culture, that we're not the ones who we shouldn't be the ones. And I think this is an opportunity for self-reflection, that we're not the ones who are becoming the victim and the victimizer, that we're not the ones who are so sensitive to anything that's said that everything's a trigger for us, or we perceive everything as a microaggression, uh, but that instead we're really listening to others and we're being candid and open with other people in our conversations that allow for them to step into a Christian worldview that we ourselves are living. And I don't think that that can really get in the way of these triggers and victimization that actually it's something that's very attractive and maybe even a breath of fresh air for someone uh, who's used to having to be on their toes with regard to sharing what they actually do and don't think in life. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I think that's exactly right. Um, I can think of an example where there was a, a coworker of mine, his name was John Paul, and uh, he went by the nickname Pope. And I had a, a manager who came to me and said, uh, you know, is, is the fact that he goes by Pope, you know, you're a Catholic, is that offensive to you? And I said, look, man, if I got offended by stuff like that, you know, in terms of what the Catholic Church has had to deal with in 2000 years, you know, I wouldn't be able to make much headway in my, in my Catholic faith. I'm not offended by, you know, something like that. I think it's kind of funny, actually. Um, so I think you're right that it can be a little bit disarming um, when people realize that, you know, we as Catholics, you know, we can you know, we, we're not, we're not hypersensitive. We're not hyper emotive. We're willing to, um, you know, take criticism and, uh, and, and, uh, and not react with, uh, with you know, the kind of anger and vitriol that many of those, um, who have been, uh, you know, deceived into, you know, this language of, uh, triggers and, and safe spaces and microaggressions have, you know, have, have so deeply embraced. 
That's Casey Chalk here on Trending with Tim Murray. Thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on the birth of your latest baby, baby number five. We'll have to have you back on again soon here on Trending. Coming up, we're in the midst of the Advent season. We're going to talk about preparation for death, why we should be thinking about death as we're walking through Advent. The season isn't just about decorations. It actually really isn't about decorations and putting everything up before Advent. It's about preparing the way of the Lord. And so we'll talk about staying in the spirit of the season with preparing for our death today on Trending. I'll be right back. shall come forth an Advent hymn uh, that we're unpacking and enjoying in this Advent season. I try really hard to listen to as much Advent music as possible and not jump too soon into the Christmas music. We're hearing about the lineage of Jesus Christ uh, in that Davidic kingdom, starting with Jesse, the father of David, uh, talking about salvation history and Christ, that Messiah who will come who will have the spirit of light, of wisdom, and of truth. Beautiful song. Again, A Shoot Shall Come Forth. We'll post a link to it on social media. Just follow me at Timory. That's T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. And hey, talking about heading into the Christmas season, the Merry Beggars has something amazing in store for you and your family this coming Sunday night as we wrap up the first week of Advent. So join us for our Christmas Live. I know we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but it's a one-hour variety show that celebrates Advent in the joy of the Christmas season. You'll smile, laugh, and enjoy live musical performances that might even inspire you to sing along. As we pause our mystery series on the night train during the month of December, be sure to tune in each Sunday night at 6 p.m. Central for something special to prepare your heart for Christmas. This weekend, it's Christmas Live only on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Okay, if you didn't listen to yesterday's episode of Trending Yet, you need to. We're talking about breaking down that Advent wreath that many of us grew up with in our homes and perhaps, hopefully, you're incorporating into your house, but understanding a little bit more of the tradition and the details behind it. A couple things I didn't have the opportunity to share, so be sure to go and listen to the yesterday's episode because I'm not going to rehash all of it, but I want to talk a little bit about the actual wreath itself. 
So traditionally, you actually would have a live evergreen wreath that you set. So what I do in our house, I'll have to take a picture of it. It's still in a moving box. I've got my candles ready. I just don't have the wreath out yet. Uh, but we have, you know, the four candles, three purple, the one pink. And then I just have a really simple ring base, really I think about it somewhere like really, really inexpensive. And then I usually go because they have a, one that fits my advent wreath well. I usually run over to Trader Joe's and buy a fresh ever, tiny evergreen wreath to put inside. Why evergreen? Well, evergreen reminds us of our eternal life with Christ and that round circle of it we were talking yesterday, that circle again reminds us of eternal life, that we're made for eternal life and that's only possible because of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, often there are also usually both pine cones and those pointy holly leaves with berries on the evergreen wreath. The pointy holly leaves and berries actually represent the crown of thorns from the passion of Jesus Christ and his precious blood. So it's a foretaste. It's a projection. It's a prophecy into the suffering that will occur. Even as we anticipate this Christ child, we keep in context the life and death of our Lord Jesus Christ, as well as his resurrection, because pine cones, if you didn't know this, are actually a symbol for Christ's resurrection. So some fun things and prayers that you can incorporate into your Advent season. I'll include a link in the episode notes for some essentials for Advent, Advent handbook. Um, I have a really simple pamphlet that I just keep. I'll post a link to it as well as in the episode notes for today's show. So be sure to check those out and listen to yesterday's episode. I'm posting a link of it on social media. Follow me at Timmery, T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. But I will say one thing that I've been trying to incorporate last year as well as this year during Advent is when we use either morning prayer or that family time of a meal, sometimes it's breakfast, sometimes it's dinner for us, when we light the Advent wreath, I try to, and I'm not a singer, neither is my husband, to incorporate a song such as O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's a great option and it's in the spirit of the season. It's an Advent hymn and we just play it and sing along, which is fun. And my daughter, you know, enjoying music uh, gets to enjoy that as well. Okay, so we're in our Advent season and every day here on Trending, we're diving into some deep Advent content. Advent is that season of preparation for Christ. I'll include a link as I laid out earlier in the weeks before Advent, uh, what that Advent season is. One of the things that we often ponder in the Advent season are the four last things, four last things, including death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And today I want to talk a little bit about death. Um, Why would we talk about death? Well, We're in this Advent season where we're supposed to be preparing ourselves for Christ, preparing ourselves to celebrate him at Christmas and the birth of the Christ child, and to prepare ourselves for that judgment at the end of our life when we meet Christ face to face and we find out where we're going, heaven, hell, or purgatory. One of my favorite people to talk about this is St. Alphonsus Liguori. Favorite book. It's been on my Advent recommendation list for years. It's called Preparation for Death, short meditations that are just an absolute punch in the gut. But in this book, completely themed around the understanding that we all die, no matter how much money or how little you have, no matter how many familial connections, friendships, where you live, where you don't live, we all will die. That is one thing that is certain. I've seen Alphonsus Liguori touches on the fact that our death is certain, that it's necessary, it's a part of 
uh, our human uh, trajectory as God intended us. And it's what's necessary to enter into the heavenly kingdom with God in heaven. And But it's also, as we ponder that it's certain and necessary, death is also transcended by Christ's death. That without the birth, life, and death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, death would not be uh, what it is fully meant to be. You see, the fall of Adam and Eve prevented us for a time from entering into the kingdom of heaven. Now the gates to the heaven are open. Redemption of the human race has occurred, but our individual salvation, meaning whether or not each and every single one of us, which one of us, ones of us will enter into heavenly glory is in part up to us at the same time as Christ's grace working in our lives. So we should actually desire death. Why? Because through death, we enter into life in Christ. This is a fundamental idea that starts very early on for us as baptized Christians, that we enter into the death of Christ in baptism to be reborn in Christ as little Christ. And by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is what makes it so that we are able to enter into heavenly glory with him. So what's at risk here? When we die, again, there are some options. Not that we get to choose them after death. In fact, uh, as to where we will go is already determined at the moment of death. We just have the opportunity to meet our maker, meet our Lord Jesus Christ, and find out what our sentencing is based on how we did or did not live our lives. So what's at risk? The risk is hell. St. Alphonsus Liguori calls hell the principal torment. He says it's the pain of having lost God. So while we should desire our death, we should also prepare for it. And make sure we're really pondering where we want to go so that our actions our goal, are in line with our goal. Now, how are some ways that we can prepare for death? Well, it really comes back to the whole idea of day-to-day choices, of sin. And I know we don't live in a culture where it's popular to talk about sin, but it's important. And apart from a community of faith, maybe those faith-filled parents or grandparents you grew up with, there aren't a lot of things in our culture encouraging us or calling us to self-reflect, to walk through an examination of conscience, to go running to confession to be healed by the blood of the Lamb. What do you think about confession? What do you believe about confession? If you're struggling with what confession is, that sacrament of reconciliation, I really want to encourage you to pray. Ask our Lord to open your heart and your mind to understand this great gift and to seek it out, to receive it, to be freed from the shackles of sin that weigh our lives down. St. Teresa of Avila, uh, the great Carmelite, in one of her books, I remember I was reading I'm trying to remember the name of it right now. I can't remember. But St. Teresa of Avila talks a lot about our spiritual life, uh, spiritual theology. And with regard to preparing for death, she really encourages us in our day-to-day lives, no matter what age, to work on one predominant vice at a time. That we are really able to identify what that particular thing is that is the resounding theme of our struggle, of our sin, of that repetitive behavior that is hurting ourselves, hurting others, damaging our relationships, damaging our relationships with loved ones, colleagues, strangers, or most importantly, God. 
When we have our relationship right with God, our relationships with others are transformed. This is why at the original state of the human person in the Garden of Eden, God literally, he walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. Read Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, the creation to the fall of the human person. That relationship was so poignant, so grace-filled, so intimate. Their relationship of Adam and Eve with God, that vertical relationship with God was so clear that the horizontal relationships they had with each other, with creation, with other people was clear. It was purified before the fall. And that's what we seek to re, uh, regain through the grace of Jesus Christ and through working on that one prominent vice at a time and taking it to confession to our Lord. Now, if you don't know what that is, I really want to encourage you to pause, to pray, you know, spend some time writing, uh, spend some time in adoration. And I've always been told many times over the last few years to turn to Our Lady of Sorrows under that title and ask her to help reveal to you, to ask Our Lady to reveal to you uh, what that predominant vice, that sin is that you need to work on. Now, remember, our bodies, literally our physical bodies, body and soul, adjust to the repetitive sin that we are living in. That is what the soul is doing, the body will follow. Not that there won't be negative consequences, but what I'm saying is that we often have to fight against sin with our will, right, within the soul, but with our bodies as well. I think of St. Paul, we often know where he talks about, you know, the very things I don't want to do, I do. He's fighting against his body. St. Alphonsus Liguori says, if you continue to sin, gradually you will cease to feel remorse of conscience. You will think no more of eternity nor of your soul, and you will lose almost all light. You will also lose all fear. It's very fascinating. You lose remorse of conscience, eternity. You don't think of eternity. You lose almost all light, and you even lose fear. What, what's significant about losing fear? You lose the fear you have of hurting others, which should inspire you in your conscience to be remorseful, to try and make up with others, to try and um, you lose fear of even hurting yourself. You just keep going. You lose the fear, what is known as fear of the Lord, right? One of the seven uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit. Fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord isn't that we're necessarily afraid and trembling before the mightiness of God, but more so that we're afraid of losing the love and the union and the gift of that relationship with God and the grace of God that is an absolute gift pouring forth into us. It is only through God that we're even breathing or living at this moment. Do you ever ponder that? I think this is why the secular world fears so intensely death. Because they've rejected God, and because they have rejected God, they've rejected the very life source that no matter which way you slice it, is what's making it so that you and I are breathing and living today. We need confession. We need to fear the loss of the life of God within us. Sanctifying grace. Mortal sin. If you are in a state of mortal sin... 
You are severed from the life of God at this time. You're severed from sanctifying grace and you need to make your life right with God. This is why uh, so much of Advent, we hear these things over and over again about, quote, penance services. What is a penance service? That's when a lot of priests come to your church or another church and they offer confession for hours. Prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare for Jesus Christ. We shouldn't just do this at Advent. We shouldn't just do this at Lent. We should always fight to go to confession at least once a month. If you're really struggling with something, I say at least once a week or going once a week, working on that sin. But when I talk about what St. Alphonsus Liguori said, that when we continue to sin, we feel we no longer feel remorse. We no longer think of eternity and we lose all light. And he said, you lose all fear. Well, what's interesting is one of the um, one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is fortitude, right? Uh, fortitude, also known as courage, but really courage is to act in the face of fear. And fortitude is to act in the face of the fear to the point of death, where you're willing to die. And so what's interesting is when we talk about someone who's courageous or someone has fortitude, often the secular world or even ourselves will think that to be courageous, to have fortitude means that we uh, no longer have fear. But the fact of the matter is, is that fear is always a part of every courageous action we might enter into. But it's the fact that we're willing to act in the face of it, willing to fight to choose God, willing to fight to choose what is right rather than our own comfort. We're willing to fight to choose others. And even to the point of sacrificing everything we have for proper union with God.